0: Hey everyone, this is Dr. Howe. Wow, time is flying, it's already April and here we are in spring of 2022. A lot of us already now are thinking about the upcoming hurricane season. Hey, before we get into this podcast, I wanted to ask you a favor. Could you please subscribe to our podcast, your subscription actually helps us track professional progress and form partnerships moving forward it also ensures that you'll more easily find the latest episode of the geotrek podcast well this year we're going to look ahead at the upcoming hurricane season hurricane season officially runs from june 1st until november 30th but especially in april and may Coastal residents start thinking more about the upcoming hurricane season. Before we look at this upcoming season, let's look back at last year. The 2021 Atlantic hurricane season was active with 21 named storms, seven hurricanes, and four major hurricanes. So hurricanes produce winds of at least 74 miles an hour, and major hurricanes generate winds of at least 111 miles an hour. Uh, The the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season was the third most active year on record in terms of named storms. It was also the first time in history that back-to-back hurricane seasons observed more than 20 named storms. If you feel like hurricane seasons have been more active lately, you're right. Last year was the sixth consecutive season with above normal hurricane activity in the Atlantic. The 30-year average for the basin is 14 named storms per year, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. So why have hurricane seasons been so active lately? Well, let's look at the science behind that right now. Part of the story relates to Atlantic Basin sea surface temperatures because hurricanes use warm ocean water as fuel for development. When I say the Atlantic Basin, I'm referring to the Atlantic Ocean, the Caribbean Sea, and the Gulf of Mexico. Within this basin, scientists often refer to the main development region. It's a rectangular box that extends from the Caribbean all the way east to near the west coast of Africa. This is an area we watch closely because a lot of these long track hurricanes that form in August and September develop in this region. Sea surface temperatures in this this region have been running warmer than normal for a long time. This is part of a climate cycle called the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, or the AMO, when the AMO is in a positive phase, sea surface temperatures in the main development region of the Atlantic are, warming, are running warmer than normal. This positive phase of this cycle has been occurring since 1995. This explains in part why we've seen so many active hurricane seasons over approximately the past 25 years. If you go back before that, the 70s, 80s, and early 90s generally observed less hurricane activity in the Atlantic as the AMO was in a negative phase. So what can we expect for the upcoming hurricane season, and will the AMO stay positive or switch back to negative? Well, phase changes within this climate cycle are rare. The AMO likes to stay in one phase for multiple decades. So we would not expect to see frequent changes with this pattern. I just glanced at the latest map of sea surface temperature anomalies or how, un- how unusually warm or cold the water is out there in the Atlantic. These come from NOAA, and it showed that most of the Atlantic Basin is observing warmer than normal ocean temperatures near the water surface. We call that sea surface temperatures. Some of the warmest areas right now are found in the Gulf of Mexico and off the southeast Atlantic coast of the U.S., So it appears that the positive AMO phase is continuing, and this factor does shift Atlantic hurricane season activity to usually be be more active than normal. What are other factors we consider when we look at these hurricane forecasts? You know, in recent years, we see a lot of groups submitting or you know putting out these hurricane forecasts of how many hurricanes we can expect, how many named storms, what are what are other factors besides the ocean temperatures in the Atlantic that go into the ingredients for predicting the activity of hurricane season. This might sound odd, but another thing that we look at are the water temperatures in the equatorial Pacific Ocean. But this is to predict hurricane activity in the Atlantic. Why would the Pacific Ocean water temperatures matter? Well, we look at an area really west of Peru and Ecuador off the coast of South America. And this in this rectangular box, we look for the water temperatures when they're warmer than normal in this region. It's a phase called El Nino. So warm water in the Pacific, we call it El Nino. That leads to increased thunderstorm activity in the region, which tends to produce more wind shear or winds that change direction with height in the atmosphere near Central America, the Caribbean Sea, and the Gulf of Mexico. The presence of wind shear in this area decreases hurricane activity. Some warm water in the Pacific equals less hurricanes on average in the Atlantic. By contrast, when the waters of the Equatorial Pacific run colder than normal, this is called a La Niña. During the La Niña phase, thunderstorm activity in this region decreases, as does wind shear near Central America, the Caribbean, and the Gulf of Mexico. This means colder Pacific water usually uh, correlates with more hurricane activity in the Atlantic. So a recipe for an active Atlantic hurricane season is a positive or warm phase of the AMO. Remember the AMO is the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. It refers to sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic and a negative or cold phase in the climate pattern that we call ENSO, which stands for El Nino Southern Oscillation. This is getting into those Pacific water temperatures. When the ocean temps are warm in the Atlantic and cold in the Pacific, we generally observe more Atlantic hurricane activity. We should also be aware that the ENSO or the El Niño-Southern Oscillation phase out there in the Pacific goes through goes through phase changes much more rapidly than the AMO, meaning water temps in the equatorial Pacific change more frequently than in the main development region of the Atlantic Ocean. Columbia University in New York City has a great webpage showing past Pacific water temperatures as well as future predictions. You can find this by doing a web search for IRI slash CPC ENSO forecast, or if you just put in Columbia University, El Nino Southern Oscillation forecast, something like that, I think you'll find it. It shows that the past Pacific water temperatures are plotted back to 1982 for an area or a rectangular box called Nino 3.4. This is a specific area along the equatorial Pacific, often used by climate scientists to study long-term climate patterns. The graphic shows that phase changes for this climate pattern are most common on a one to three year time frame, sometimes even shorter than that. Sometimes a phase change, you know, may happen in six to nine months, but very often we see one to three year cycles for El Niño Southern Oscillation. The longest continuous phase for this climate cycle was a four year La Niña phase that extended from early 1998 to early 2002. More recently, we've been in a La Niña phase since early 2020. La Nina phases through the summer of 2020 and 2021, in addition to the warm water temperatures in the Atlantic, are the two biggest reasons that the last two hurricane seasons in the Atlantic have been so active. So we're currently observing a La Nina in the equatorial Pacific, but what is the forecast for the heart of this upcoming Atlantic hurricane season? Well, the Columbia University website provides a forecast for three-month blocks. An especially important block are the months of August, September, October. So this is a forecast looking at this next August, September, and October. What does it say? The latest forecast for this time period issued in early March 2022 predicts a 45% chance that will be in La Nina, a 45% chance that will be in and so neutral conditions, so that means not La Nina and not El Nino, and a 10% chance that we'll be in El Nino. Because La Nina conditions are more likely than El Nino, and because the water temps in the Atlantic are running so warm, forecasters will predict a more active than normal Atlantic hurricane season for 2022. So how many named storms, hurricanes, and major hurricanes can we expect this season? Those numbers will be coming out soon from research groups like NOAA and Colorado State University. I'll spend a lot of time this week with some of those top researchers at the National Tropical Weather Conference in South Padre Island, Texas. I'll make sure that I share what I learned there on a future episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Before we move on, I wanna share one last question that people have about upcoming hurricane season forecast. A lot of people wanna know not only how active the upcoming hurricane season will be, but what about the tracking of these storms? Where are they likely to go? Will there be a lot of storms that just stay out to sea, or will there be more storms that impact the US mainland and the Caribbean? One way that we can predict hurricane tracks is by looking at a climate index called the North Atlantic Oscillation, or the NAO. This index relates to air pressure patterns Over the Atlantic Ocean, when the NAO is in a positive phase, the Bermuda High tends to be stronger and displaced to the northeast. Now, high pressure areas dominate a large amount of ocean real estate and force hurricanes to track around them, passing to their south and then along the western periphery. So a high pressure center shifted off to the north and east enables hurricanes to track farther east as well, often staying off the eastern seaboard of the Atlantic coast. However, in the negative phase of the NAO, the Bermuda High tends to be weaker and positioned farther to the southwest. This pushes the storm tracks farther west as well, generally causing more landfalls in the U.S. mainland and impacts in the Caribbean as well. To understand how the NAO may influence hurricane tracks, we look at the NAO index numbers for the months of May and June. It's a little too early to tell what those index values will be this year. I'll check back with you in June with an update on this. As hurricane season approaches, what are some of the other important stories and you know more trends that we've been seeing that... We want to look back in recent hurricane seasons. I've compiled a list of five important topics from the tropics. Let's check this out. Now we're going to be looking now, um, really looking back at the last couple of years and looking at some of the trends and some of the stories that have come out and really things that we can learn from the past several hurricane seasons that may and really change or help us to improve the way we, we respond and prepare for hurricane season for this upcoming year. Number five, be prepared early in the season. Last year was the seventh consecutive year in which we had the first named storm developed before the official start of hurricane season on June 1st. While the official start of hurricane season has not moved up, the National Hurricane Center has begun issuing a tropical weather outlook starting on May 15th. So again, seven years in a row where we've had a named storm in May or before, that seems to be a trend and it's something that we need to keep an eye on. Again, we often think of hurricane season starting in June 1st, you know, what if you have a named storm moving ashore during mid or late May? Are you prepared for that? Uh, That's coming up sooner than we think. So be prepared for early storms, Flooding, of course, can happen even if we don't have a named storm, especially for our areas in the southeast U.S. and along the Gulf Coast. Number four, be prepared for stalling hurricanes and tropical storms both at the coast and well inland. Fortunately, we did not have a stalled out tropical storm or hurricane at landfall last season, but it happened in the six previous seasons. This is still a current trend and models predict that more stalled out tropical cyclones are likely in the future as atmospheric circulation has slowed in some areas. This is a major concern because stalled out tropical systems dump a lot more rain and also generate prolonged winds and prolonged coastal flooding. During Hurricane Florence field work in North Carolina in 2018, people told me that the amount of tree falls near Wilmington was a lot greater than they expected because the storm moved so slowly, it enabled prolonged winds to push against trees that were standing in saturated soils. So, you know, it, it's a lot better if a hurricane can move through in, in six, 12, 18 hours. When a hurricane's really slow and you have these strong winds for more than 18 hours, you're getting into 24, 36 hours. You have these strong winds blowing against trees. Well, in the beginning of the storm, the trees are well-rooted. By the end of the storm, the saturated soil, a lot of these trees give way. And we saw a lot of tree falls there in Eastern North Carolina during Hurricane Florence in 2018 because this storm was moving through so slowly. These stalled out tropical cyclones also generate tremendous rainfall totals, not only at the coast, but really far inland. This is getting into cities like Houston, Baton Rouge, you know, getting into Montgomery, Alabama, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, right? They're they're elevated there a little bit. They're not as uh, prone to storm surge. But these areas that are inland, even much of uh, South Carolina saw a lot of this in 2015, places like Columbia, South Carolina. Not a place that people always think uh, as the worst place for hurricane impacts, but all of a sudden you when we have tremendous rain moving inland and we have a stalled out storm, we can see impacts well more than even 50 or 100 miles inland from the coast. So are you prepared for tremendous rainfall if you're within a couple hundred miles of the coast? If the trend continues that we've seen in six out of the past seven years, this is a trend that we need to be really concerned about. Okay, item number three, be aware of the coastal population explosion in your area. Many people in in coastal counties and parishes have never experienced a hurricane before. This is a story that I picked up last year. We had... A uh, hurricane strike the Texas coast last September. It was called Hurricane Nicholas. It came in around September 13th to 14th. Nicholas made landfall along the Texas coast as a category one hurricane with maximum sustained winds of 75 miles an hour. The eye came ashore down the coast from where I live. So it came ashore down by Matagorda Bay along the central Texas coast. I documented the storm from my hometown here in Galveston, where I drove around streaming videos of wind and flood damage during the storm. I was trying to document as many impacts as I could. While I was able to capture some great wind and flood footage, I knew the winds in Galveston were far from hurricane force. It seemed to me like they were maybe in the 40s to 50s. I was shocked the next day to go on social media and see tons of people in Galveston saying, wow, we just survived a hurricane. So officially down the coast, Nicholas was a hurricane. Here in town, I knew we were far from hurricane force winds. The official National Hurricane Center report for Hurricane Nicholas has now come out and they said that the maximum sustained winds in Galveston where I was filming were sustained at 43 miles an hour with gusts to 62 miles an hour. Now hurricane force winds are sustained at more than 74 miles an hour so Nicholas would have had to produce winds 31 miles an hour stronger than it did to really be a hurricane strike on Galveston or wind gust of at least 12 miles an hour stronger to produce hurricane force wind gusts. So this was really far from being a hurricane here. It got the trees blowing around a little bit. We did have some minor flooding. But mostly, I think it opened the eyes of locals. As, as I shared my perspective on social media, a lot of locals were really shocked. A few replied, you mean that wasn't even a hurricane? They were surprised because we did have some tree falls in town. We had some power outages and all of our, you know, buildings, our roofs, our our windows were rattling. The storm kind of shook us up, but we didn't really see the devastation that a hurricane would cause. My interaction with a lot of these people though caused them to make comments like wow if that was not even a hurricane I'm definitely leaving if an actual hurricane hits us. This is important because we often talk about hurricane forecast in miles an hour and what we're expecting the winds to be but what people often do is they're really comparing it back to something that they can reference in their history. And so if you have a lot of people if you have thousands or even you know along the entire coast of the US we have millions of people that have li- that are living in coast coastal counties and parishes but they've never experienced a hurricane before and so they really have no reference point you know as as bad as it is to see even these weaker storms we don't ever want to see any kind of destruction in our coastal area but some of these weaker storms one of the benefits of them is that they do open up people's eyes it gives them a frame of reference and now there are a lot of people in my town that went through a tropical storm That was far from being a hurricane. And they said, wow, that really, you know, that brought down my tree, that knocked out my power, my house was shaking. And we were still, you know, 30 plus miles an hour short of being a hurricane. If a hurricane actually comes, I'm gonna get out of there. And so sometimes these weaker storms do give us a frame of reference and they're useful opportunities for us to help educate people that often what people are thinking a hurricane really is, is way worse than what they imagine. And so this is really important because of the coastal population explosion. We have a lot of people again that have never actually experienced hurricanes that live in coastal areas. You know, the coastal population is really growing really all along the Gulf Coast and especially the southeast U.S. The last substantial hurricane to strike Galveston, where I live, was Hurricane Ike 14 years ago. Since then, the population of my county, Galveston County, has grown by 22 percent. So we have 63,000 more people that live in our county today than when Ike struck back in 2008. So if you live in a coastal area, it could be the mid-Atlantic coast all the way down to the southeast U.S., the Gulf of Mexico, there's a chance that the coastal population in your area has really exploded in the past decade or two. And so there may be a lot of people that live in harm's way that have never experienced a hurricane before. Okay, number two on the list of things that we've learned in recent years that can really open our eyes and help us prepare for hurricane season. Number two is that we don't need a high category storm to create massive impacts. The Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale is really for wind and is not really telling us that much about what flood impacts could be. And so we were just talking about Hurricane Ike that struck the upper Texas coast in 2008. You know, that storm keeps coming up in the local and regional history where I live because not only was that storm so devastating, it was also very surprising for a multitude of people. One reason Hurricane Ike was so surprising is that it obliterated much of the coastal Texas area, even though it was classified as a Category 2 hurricane. Many people say they're not going to evacuate if it's only a Category 1 or Category 2, They'll imply that, you know, they they wait till a certain number until they evacuate. But a lot of the people that said that during Hurricane Ike found themselves fighting for their lives as their homes were washing away. So Ike taught us a very important lesson that has been taught by other storms as well. Our classification system is based on wind speed, but most of the death and destruction from hurricanes is caused by floodwater. Soon after Hurricane Ike, the National Hurricane Center changed the name of the classification system from the Saffir-Simpson scale- to the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale. So they put in the words hurricane wind on there and they removed storm surge from the estimates of that scale. So before, you know, 2008 and before you could pull up, do a web search for the Saffir-Simpson scale and they would have storm surge estimates related with the category of the storm. They stopped doing that starting in the 2009 season after Hurricane Ike and other storms like Katrina really surprised a lot of people. Geographic size, forward speed, coastal shape, water depth, and pre-landfall wind speeds are all contributing factors to coastal flood risk. It's possible that a large, so geographically large, slow-moving category one hurricane moving over shallow coastal water could actually generate a higher storm surge or saltwater flood than a small, fast-moving Category 4 hurricane moving over deeper coastal water. For this reason, wind and flood hazards are forecast separately, and coastal residents should keep in mind that every storm is different, and will throw a different combination of the three major hazards at us. So keep in mind, the three major hazards that hurricanes throw at us are wind, saltwater flooding, called storm surge, and heavy rainfall flooding as well both at the coast and inland. So just something to keep in mind, every storm is different. I see when I travel around coastal communities, a lot of people are looking back to the last storm. They're thinking about that storm that hit six years ago or 20 years ago. And they're, they're thinking, oh, okay, th- this is what the flood pattern is. This is what the wind pattern is. But every storm is different. So we always need to be prepared for what a new storm could throw at us. Although we do keep an eye in the past, every storm is different than ones before. The number one new perspective that I gained from the 2021 hurricane season by far, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this one, it's the dangerous impact and the troublesome trend observed in rapid intensification of hurricanes near landfall. Last season was the fifth consecutive season in which a hurricane intensified by at least 40 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. This happened when Hurricane Ida roared ashore there in Southeast Louisiana. It intensified by an amazing 55 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall, and it it approached the Southeast Louisiana coast with 150 mile an hour sustained winds. For context, this has now happened, this rapid intensification, five times in the past five hurricane seasons, but it's only happened 10 times since 1950. In the second half of the 20th century, rapid intensification happened three times in 50 years or about once every 17 years. And again, it's happened five times over the past five years. It's a disturbing trend that appears to be linked to higher sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico. Long-term weather records are, you know, we we do have long-term weather records in different areas. We have less long-term records of sea surface temperatures. So how do we know what the trend is actually in this region? Well, it actually works out. The city where I live, Galveston, we have the longest continuous weather records west of the Mississippi River. And I did an analysis of the overnight temperatures in Galveston for the months of June through September to see if I could find any long-term trend in the number of hot nights. So hot night is really a night where I chose a minimum temperature of 84 degrees. I wanted to see, you know, is there a, a change in the number of hot nights in Galveston? over time. And the reason I chose nighttime temperatures is because we don't have sun at night. So we're taking the sun out of it. We also see less rainfall at night. So things are a little more consistent. Also, Galveston is an insightful location for this analysis, because in the summertime, we get a consistent southeast wind that's just blowing onshore, really for months at a time, typically in Galveston during the summer months. And so I wanted to look at, you know, this onshore wind blowing over. And here in Galveston, we're right pretty much on the beach. I wanted to see if there was a trend in our overnight temperatures going back more than 100 years, because these overnight temperatures should be very influenced by the Gulf of Mexico water temperatures. When I plotted out the occurrence of hot nights, I couldn't believe what I found. I found that Galveston never had a night with an overnight low of 84 degrees or higher until 1927. And then throughout the 20th century, the number of hot nights started increasing. The first overnight temperature of 85 degrees happened in the mid-1990s. In the past several years, the number of hot nights have has absolutely exploded. In 2019 and 2020, we observed more than 25 nights of hot nights per season. Again, this is a night with an air temperature of at least 84 degrees. We've had 25 of them in 2019 and 2020 each year, or actually more than 25. And in 2019, we observed the first nights with a low temperature of 86 degrees. It happened three times. And in 2020, we observed the first time that we had an overnight low of 87 degrees. It happened four times, and we had three more at 86. This is just exploding when you look at the graph. Again, it never even happened before 1927 as far as an overnight low of 84. And now we're now we're popping off 86s and 87s. So it's just hard to believe how much this has changed. The explosion in the number of hot nights is likely likely correlated to hot water temperatures in the Gulf. Last year, we maxed out with a highest water temperature here along the Texas coast of 91 degrees at our nearest tide gauge. That's right, water temperature of 91 degrees. When you walk into that, it it feels like water that you almost just like took off the stove. It it feels very warm and almost like you can't believe that it, it feels that way out in nature when you're not in a hot spring. The correlation of warm water temperatures and rapid intensification is important because rapidly intensifying hurricanes are a game changer as far as storm preparedness and evacuation. I learned that last summer when I was in Metro New Orleans. So going to talk a little bit about that. And I want to say as well, we haven't published anything about these hot nights in Galveston and tying them with sea surface temperatures, but it's something that I'm going to continue to look into and research. So I wanna talk a little bit here about the impact of these warm water temperatures and the rapidly intensifying hurricanes and why this is a game changer at the coast. And I come back to this story that I got last year during my field research in Metro New Orleans. This was late August in the days after Hurricane Ida. And I talked to this couple that was in Laplace, Louisiana. It's kind of on the western end of New Orleans Metro. This couple stayed for the hurricane They did not anticipate any life-threatening conditions. So they thought that they're going to be fine. They don't need to evacuate. All of a sudden, as they're riding out Hurricane Ida in their house, flood water started flowing into their home, and it started getting deep really quickly. And so they reacted by pulling down the attic stairs and taking refuge in their attic. Now, if this was a tropical storm or a storm with light winds, it, they'd probably survive that without a problem. Uh, the problem in this case is that they actually had hurricane force winds in their area, thought to be probably at least category two. We'll have to see when the official report comes out on Ida. But these hurricane winds were strong enough that there were some roofs in their community that were actually taken off by the intense winds. So it might've been upper level category two Uh, it, It was strong enough that there was major roof damage in their neighborhood. And so the attic was not a great place to ride out the storm, but they really had no choice because they were taking refuge there because of the deep floodwater coming into their house. And so they were kind of caught in this catch-22 and this potentially deadly situation. In our conversation, the woman indicated that they absolutely would have evacuated if they realized such intense winds and high floodwaters were threatening their neighborhood. She didn't realize this, though, because she felt that the risk was downplayed and not well communicated. So... Her perspective on this kind of aligned with some of my observations driving around New Orleans' metro area the day before the storm. I was shocked to drive through Metro New Orleans the day before Hurricane Ida and find the emergency message boards said nothing about the approaching hurricane. Instead, they read, seat belts, vaccinations, both save lives. Why were the emergency message boards not warning people of the approaching hurricane? Why was Metro New Orleans not evacuated? So check this out. This gets fascinating. We often assume that evacuations have everything to do with dangerous conditions, be it extreme weather, volcanoes, things like that. Uh, That's not always the case. There's definitely some sociology involved as well. And what I realized, and this was confirmed last year, these evacuation decisions partly have to do with the weather, but it also has to do with the ability to evacuate a massive amount of people. And so, uh, you know, last year, this was a formidable hurricane moving in, which ended up being a Category 4, But uh, and there were evacuations along the coastal areas, but New Orleans Metro was not evacuated. A less formidable Hurricane Gustav in 2008 triggered a mandatory evacuation of Metro New Orleans. So Gustav made landfall near Grand Isle, very close to where Hurricane Ida made landfall last year. Gustav in 2008 was a Category 2. There was a mandatory evacuation for New Orleans Metro. Last year, we had a similar track storm make landfall as a Category 4, but there was no mandatory evacuation 13 years later. And so this is really interesting because Ida was, it turns out at landfall, 51 miles an hour stronger than Gustav. So the stronger storm, by 51 miles an hour, there's no mandatory evacuation of New Orleans Metro, the weaker storm there is why the difference. The difference has everything to do with this rapid intensification. With Ida, the authorities just felt like there was not enough time to get everyone out. Evacuation takes a lot of time, especially in a place like Metro New Orleans where there are few evacuation routes and Ida rapidly intensified. The models did a great job of projecting a possible rapid rapid intensification, but the evacuation would have needed to be initiated when this rapid intensification was still speculative. So the models were suggesting this could happen, there could be a rapid intensification in 48 to 72 hours, but it's not confirmed. We don't know. And so do you evacuate millions of people on you don't know? I can't tell you how odd it was to drive around Metro New Orleans the night before this hurricane struck. With the roads wide open, any one person or family could have easily evacuated, but many were not because they really didn't perceive the danger of the storm. My commentary on this topic is not a criticism of the authorities or people making decisions to evacuate evac, uh, to issue evacuations. This is a really complex topic. It's a really difficult decision to make and those in authority must weigh the consequence of people not evacuating against the potential greater consequence of them doing an unnecessary evacuation. So Sometimes it is a difficult decision to make. Evacuations are difficult. They're burdensome on people. They're costly for people and for government. And they also can be deadly if people are stuck in gridlock. We hear of people running out of gas and dying of heat exhaustion. We hear of um, all kinds of stressors, people dying more uh, deaths from heart attacks and things like that. Keep in mind when there's a massive evacuation, um, it's not only you moving your geographic location, but you're doing that with maybe hundreds of thousands of people. So hotels are full for a long, long way. It's hard to find gas. Um, it can be a really stressful situation, so we never want to do an, a necessary evacuation. This situation stood out to me as an important topic, though because people living in crowded coastal zones may need to more strongly consider options to shelter in place whether that's you know in a fortified or elevated home or in a nearby large building that's built to survive hurricane conditions again you know as we're seeing these rapidly intensifying storms Uh, authorities are saying, you know, we we can't issue an evacuation way out in the future for what may happen when the storm hasn't even formed yet or hasn't even really intensified yet. So for the past 40 to 50 years after the development of satellite forecasting, we've had the luxury of tracking these hurricanes a long way before they strike us. We can even see them coming off the coast of Africa. We can track them through the Caribbean. A lot of our emergency plans guide our actions, right? What we're going to do 24 hours before landfall, 48 hours, 72 hours 96 hours even in some cases what actions will be taken 120 hours before landfall in our coastal city so that assumes that we're going to have this long stretch to watch this thing coming in we're going to have a long window to prepare but what do we do when a hurricane blows up the day before landfall Perhaps we need to look to the past to find inspiration and in how our coastal ancestors de- dealt with these sudden storms. They had much less warning than we do, and they often survived by sheltering in place in the strongest building in their community. So you can find this kind of history, you know, anywhere where you find a deep hurricane history. Back to and I often bring up cases from Galveston. It's where I live, and there are so many amazing examples. 122 years ago, the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history struck my neighborhood here in Galveston. By the time the 1900 storm came to an end, between six and eight thousand people were killed in, in my area of the city. One of the lessons from the storm however is how large fortified buildings can save many lives. Just the night just last night I stopped by the former site of the Ursuline Academy. When the 1900 storm struck Galveston, a large cathedral was located on this site. A church bell stands in the yard of the site today with a sign that reads The Ursuline Chapel Bell beckoned islanders to the Ursuline Academy for refuge during the 1900 storm. 1,500 persons were rescued that night by the Ursuline nuns. So the 1900 storm struck Galveston. People didn't know what was coming. And as you know, as their houses collapsed, they often took refuge in a neighboring house or a large, large building that was stronger that was going to withstand the storm. And so people didn't have a warning, but they sheltered in place the best they could. And this is an inspirational sign in my community that 1,500 lives were saved by the Ursuline nuns. They went out there in the storm. They were ringing the chapel bell. They were bringing people into safety, and 1,500 lives were saved. It's amazing the pictures that I've seen of the Ursuline Academy that really right after the 1,900 storm, the debris bi- the debris pile came right up to the edge of the building, but 1,500 lives were saved inside. Uh, you know, the question I wanted to ask is what lesson can be learned from this story? Is it time that we consider building some large buildings exceptionally well in hurricane zones so local residents can write out Category 4 and Category 5 hurricanes? These issues may be particularly important where we have geographic pinch points or obstructions to evacuations. New Orleans stands out as such a city. Millions of people only have a few evacuation routes out of the metro area. As Lake Pontchartrain is this large body of water to the north of the city, it forces residents really to go around it. And so they can only evacuate to the west, to the northwest, or to the northeast. There are only a few routes out of the, you know, bowl of New Orleans for hundreds of thousands or even millions of people in that metro area. The Houston-Galveston corridor presents another challenge as well because the main artery out of Galveston, the I-45 corridor, tracks right through Metro Houston, an area with more than 7 million people in the metropolitan statistical area. So it's hard to really get people out when they're having to go through one of the largest cities in North America to do so. Perhaps the biggest challenge of all, though, is found in South Florida, where millions of people would have a long ride north along few evacuation routes. I mean, how many people can drive north on I-95 until complete gridlock sets in? Portions of these highways are already very crowded during normal conditions today. How could they take the capacity of a mass evacuation in a timely manner? So, again, if we have, you know, 72 hours before hurricane landfall, that's one thing, but what do we do if it's 24 hours or less? How do we get these people out of harm's way? These are important questions we should be exploring now. Hey, if you're interested to learn how you can build better in hurricane country, if you're thinking, you know, are you prepared to shelter in place? Again, often hurricane evacuations will be issued for hurricane conditions. But the New Orleans example last year, there were hurricane conditions and there was no mandatory evacuation, not because the storm wasn't dangerous enough. They just couldn't get the people out in time. Is your home built that you could actually ride out a hurricane, a category one or two hurricane in your location? Uh, That's a question a lot of people need to, to ask about. And there are some solutions and some opportunities moving forward about how we can build better. Check out a website called Smart Home America. This is a nonprofit that's really all about building better. It's affiliated with the Fortified program that originated in South Alabama. Tens of thousands of fortified homes have now been built. And field work following storms like Hurricane Sally in Alabama in 2020 showed that, you know, fortified buildings actually held up very very well when facing hurricane conditions. So there are better ways that we can build. If you live in hurricane country, you may want to at least look at the Fortified program and look at Smart Home America about building better and thinking about how you would shelter in place if you needed to during a landfalling hurricane. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We wanted to really started talking about hurricanes again and getting people thinking about storm preparedness as we look ahead to the 2022 Atlantic hurricane season. We looked at the seasonal forecast. We looked at some of the science behind that. And we also looked at some of these important factors and trends that we've seen in recent years, which, you know, give us an idea of how we can maybe better prepare as we move ahead towards this hurricane season. Before we wrap up this podcast, a couple action items for you that I mentioned, that I'll be presenting at the National Tropical Weather Conference this week in South Padre Island you can actually join us and participate online most of the sessions are Thursday April 7th and Friday April 8th do a web search for the National Tropical Hurricane conference or go to hurricanecenterlive.com I'll present I'll be presenting the afternoon. Of Friday, April 8th. You can check out my presentation. You can even interact. A lot of times we'll have live questions that you can actually remotely interact with the presenters and ask a question. I also have three discussion questions for you about this podcast episode. Let's have a dialogue about these questions on our Facebook page called Geotrek the Community. Okay, question number one, let's interact about this. Let's have some back and forth. Does the seasonal hurricane forecast change your behavior at all? Will you do anything different if an active season is forecast versus an inactive season? Why or why not? That's question number one. Question number two, have the trends of stalled out tropical storms and uh, and hurricanes impacted you at all for example have you experienced tremendous rainfall amounts from you know if you're inland maybe you're 50 75 100 miles inland have you experienced a storm just stalling out on landfall and dumping tremendous amount of rain even if you're not at the coast or if you are at the coast i was curious to hear if people have observed these stalling out hurricanes and tropical storms and what the impact was on you That's question number two. Now let's move on to question number three. What are your thoughts about rapid intensification of hurricanes near the coast? How has this changed your evacuation plans or preparedness of your home? And would you feel comfortable sheltering in place in your home or a nearby building during a strong tropical storm or hurricane? Why or why not? Well, hey, everybody, that's all for this week. A huge thank you to our faithful listeners for your continued support of this podcast. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal signing off from Galveston, Texas. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production, team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the Geotrek podcast.